Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is TV Black Box, bringing you the inside goss from the TV industry. Hello, I'm Rob McKnight and welcome to TV Black Box. Today I am talking to Tim Burrows, who you will know from Mumbrella, although he has since moved on from his various roles throughout the creation of that fine website. Tim is an extraordinary bloke from the point of view that even when he's writing articles about you, you can't help but admire and respect what he does. He's thorough, he gets his facts right, and he's a bloody good bloke. I I don't really know Tim, but I've had interactions with Tim over the years and I really like him. He has a book out called Media Unmade. This is one of the best TV books I've ever read. His facts are correct. From what I know, of the period he writes about and where I was in my various roles throughout the television industry, everything I've read in this book correlates with what I know. This guy is someone you can trust. Now, his book, Media Unmade, you can get at unmade.substack.com. I spoke to Tim recently, and first of all, I said to him, Tim, welcome to TV Black Box. Hey, Rob, great to be with you. Mate, you know I am a big fan of yours. I've worked with you and around you and been on the other end of your reporting over the years, and I have always admired what you've done. Um, What is the thrill of getting a media story? I suppose the thing for me is I started my career as a newspaper journalist, local newspapers in the UK back in the day. And the thing I liked about that was I was writing about my own world. And then for a while, six or seven years, I went and wrote about the medical world and doctors and that sort of thing. And they're fascinating people, but not my world. Mm. So when I then kind of came back onto the media beat, again, I was writing about, you know, the community I was in some small part a part of. So I suppose that's the thing is you're, 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 you're talking about the world you've come in, the world that certainly fascinates me. So, you know, there is just uh, that, that extra attraction of covering, as a journalist, covering your own beat. Mm. And obviously you've broken some big stories. Do you think a sense of um, influence comes with a media writing job? Look, I think the funny thing is, as a journalist, is you, you get influence in whatever world you're in. And you always have to remember that, of course, this is on behalf of your audience mm. and on behalf of your readers. So, so you know, if you're, if you're sitting in the press bench at a council meeting, you're not there because you're special. You're there because you're going to be telling uh, an outside audience, an outside community, what's going on. So it's probably the same with, you know, uh, when, when, when you're covering the media beat, you're, you're influenced is because 
of your audience is not actually something that you're entitled to in your own right. Mumbrella has been a website that has had a national influence, though. We now know the term jacket gate because of Mumbrella. <laughs> how, does, how does that sit when you think back in all the things you've done and, and the things Mumbrella has broken to have something like that come to the website that just becomes a national conversation? Yeah, look, and, and of course, it's one that there was very little, you know, investigative journalism involved. We got, you know, we, as with so many of these things, we got very lucky, you know, and mm. and an email came into the to the news desk. Um, my colleague at the time, Vivian Kelly, the editor, sort of, um, uh, you know, it, it dropped in for her, for her. She passed it on to me. Um, you know, I'd often write the kind of the diary type Dr. Mumbo column, as we called it, the, yes. the, you know, which is a sort of the lighthearted things and you know that first time you watched the the jacket gate video of the you know the the for those who don't remember it was the um it, it was that sort of daytime slot on nine with uh um with the the three people who wearing the white jackets and disagreeing about that and it was watching the first time you just cringed so much it was almost like awkward and embarrassing to watch but yeah it, it you know i I guess in terms of reach, it went all around the world. It was on, you know, it was on, on it was on the US talk shows even. Um, it probably took 10 minutes to write, 15 minutes to write. <laughs> um, quick, once we were just about to hit publish, as a courtesy, a quick call to the, you know, to the PR people at Nine just to give them a heads up of what was about to come. And then that was it, you know, but it's, it's definitely, it's one of those things that, you know, will be certainly in audience terms one of Umbrella's uh, one one of Umbrella's biggest things. Um, so yeah, it's kind of it's weird if you look at all of the stories that have got us our, our biggest traffic. It's it's odd things where some quirk of SEO works yes, its yes. magic. You know, for for years our biggest story was we'd written just written up just an announcement story about how Coca Cola was launching share your share a Coke with someone of the name, and for some reason. In, in Google, in its in infinite wisdom, decided that if somebody searched "share a Coke," we would come up first, and we just <laughs> in, ended up with hundreds of comments from people all around the world saying, "You know, please, you know, please make Jemima a name on the bottle or whatever." <laughs> just, just, and the thing was, it became self-sustaining because, of course, once people saw that list of names and proposals, they somehow thought that was it. But, but you know, so you you do get these weird moments where the breakouts from within your own community you you can't really call you know they they sort of almost come from nowhere it's funny you say that one of the biggest stories i've ever written was the inventor of gaffer tape died and i literally just did a very small piece on it a photo of gaffer tape was the headline <laughs> image and that went everywhere and it was because i guess it wasn't one of those big stories everyone was reporting on it was one of those quirky little stories so yeah, yeah it does and i suppose the other thing is people people seem to like a gate as well don't they yes i, I don't know if you remember i mean out, you know out, out of out of brisbane chopper gate where yes, channel nine were faking the live crosses i mean that was obviously much earlier in in you know mumbrella's existence but again that was a massive one for us you know because mm. um because again it sort of it almost came from nowhere when you've got a story like that or jacket gate do you ever think if i publish this it's going to cause a lot of issues do you think about the implications of publishing a story 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and then, you know, I remember again, one of the, the, the biggest, I suppose, more serious stories that we covered was, um, when we realized that one of the biggest, um, media agencies, the people who by advertising on on, on on behalf of the big brands um, had had to fire a whole bunch of people over the previous couple of days because they discovered that reporting to clients had been forged, which in our little world was a massive story. Mm. And I remember being in the office at the time with a couple of colleagues, um, one of them, Nick, Christensen, who, 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 who now leads corporate communications for nine. Yes. And at the moment we were just, we'd spent, we'd stayed late. It was a Friday night. It was about seven o'clock. So, you know, we, it was much later than we'd normally put out a breaking news alert. And obviously it was legally quite complex as well. And just that moment before we finally hit send, you know, I remember Nick saying, Oh, I feel sick. And I knew exactly what he meant. Um, Cause it's, it's serious. Um, but I think the thing that, you've got to do as an editor and i'm sure you feel exactly the the, the same is you're working for your audience mm -hmm. you know you want to have good relationships with the industry you're writing about and the leaders of that industry but your audience is the people within the industry your only job as a reporter is to do your best to tell it as you see it now you might get it wrong but so long as you're honestly giving your opinion when it's opinion or you're doing your best to get yeah. the facts right when it's facts then you know don't you know don't be thinking about your advertisers don't be thinking about you know the the ceo is going to ring up and shout shout at you you know don't don't be thinking about impressing other journalists on the beat so long as you focus just on i'm doing my best to tell my audience the story as i see it then that will help you navigate most things i think that's really good advice um because there can be implications between going to print with something with some networks will shut you out if they don't like what you've printed. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, look, I, I think over time there's always been, you know, and often it's more passive aggressive than completely shutting you out. It's just like <laughs> limiting access and not even admitting that's what's going on. So, so you'll get the, the, you know, the, the varying degrees of warmth or chilliness. Mm. And then of course, you know, when you write about, you know, you write about the networks and there's these giant, you know, billion dollar companies, but at the same time, there are individuals who are leading their comms and they might have a bad day or you might have a good or bad relationship that someone in particular and that actually you know affects the flavor of how relationships are so i certainly when i started um Mumbrella in 2008 you know nine were really at the bottom at that point and but they were still quite arrogant and they it felt like it took a really long time for them to just understand why we were effectively writing day after day about mm. ratings disaster after ratings disaster as you know as they went day after day of you know ep three episodes of two and a half men in a row or something, <laughs> that was all they had in the locker so it it did you know i think sometimes when particularly when there's a status quo already that's almost when it can take a while to kind of sort of break in i think I think that's a very fair point and it's interesting from the inside watching the turnaround of a network because I went to Nine at the end of 2008 where the rebuilding was starting. You know, uh, David Gingell replaced the 6pm newsreader with Peter Overton so they were restarting what the network was and where it was going to go to the point where it got back in the game. It took a few years but it got back in the game. News was a strong part of that but then the programming and and the risks they took so you know it, 
And when you're on the inside and people are criticising Peter Overton taking over and then looking at the ratings and expecting it to go from a low number to a really high number overnight, which it's never going to do, you're there going, come on, guys, you know, like you... and. When you're on the inside, you do feel like you're being targeted by media writers. So I do understand. And now being on the I other heard, side you of know, that, you're, you're just reminding me, and I can't quite remember the details, but I'm pretty sure in the first few days of Studio 10, <laughs> I wrote some story about obviously I know one what of your rivals. Yeah, one of your rivals would have sent us the 15-minute ratings, which yes. showed there'd have been sometimes slots in a certain town where you had a zero rating. And, of course, you know, it's good it's good copy to write about. You understand why the rival would lick it. But I'm sure I had a cross... I can't remember if it was an email or a phone call, but I think I had a cross-communication from you as of, of some form. Oh, 100%, because I was like, are you serious? You know, like, it got... For 15 minutes in Perth on day one, it got a zero, which was, you know... I've done the same since then. And, and I will say, I, someone who worked at Mumbrella, who is now at a network, pulled me up for doing exactly the same thing. And I said, don't you dare. I've had this done to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, I, I did. I probably did go off about it a little bit because we're all precious. You yeah, know, TV look, and, and the, the and the thing is, I obviously wasn't too um, offended because I can't remember it as a phone call or an email, but... No, I never. I, I wouldn't have yelled and screamed at you. I, I just would have been, come on, mate, are you serious? You know, like, it's day one, and this isn't fair. And it was probably on Twitter publicly, to be honest. <laughs> um, but it, it is funny because it's one of the few industries where you're judged every morning. At 8.58, when those ratings come through, you are judged on your performance the day before. So it provides media writers with enough data to be able to make judgment calls. And Studio 10 was a hard build. And you saw the whole wake up thing and, and you cover parts of that in your book, and which I really want to talk about in a moment because this is a phenomenal book. But it's interesting to see the two areas. And now having been someone on the inside, working on the outside, looking in, it's a fascinating way that people perceive things. And it's also personal when you're on the inside. It really is. Yeah, look, it, it absolutely is. And I, you know, I think one of the talking about nine and the rebuild process, the that I think was one of the things that was, um, I suppose one of the challenges in the book was how to call the moment because you have to pick a moment. And, mm. you know, and, and as you'd know, for me, you know, for me, it was um, Adrian Swift and Michael Healy sitting in Hill's office in, in Sydney, waiting for the ratings from The Voice to come in yes. in 2012. And, you know, I, I, I can still remember that as a, Journo writing about the beat and it just seemed like nine was having miss after miss mm -hmm. after miss and then that came through and it exceeded everyone's expectations and it it felt like that was the moment when they started to climb back out of the hole again that was absolutely the moment and it was a 20 million dollar gamble on behalf of Nine's part, and which at that point, yes, we pay $20 million for reality shows all the time now, but then at that time was not a thing. Nobody paid that kind of money for a reality TV show. And Nine took the gamble, did it, and it just, it, it was the start of a transformation process on that network. Absolutely right. Before I talk to you about the book, 
I want to get your reaction to the death of David Leckie. This, this, mm. He was a big player in the media industry. Um, what were what were your memories and perceptions of David Leckie? Well, remember, so I, I came to Australia about fifteen years ago, so I think he was he was coming towards the end of his of of, of his yes. network career at that point. Um, so I I. Looking back now, I realised I I didn't see him at his very best. Mm. And I I think my first thought when I learned, you know, uh, on on, on the day the announcement came through that that he'd passed away at the age of 70, my first thought was, what a shame that his ill health, and, you know, it's been publicly acknowledged in the past, that included a difficult relationship with alcohol, cut short what could have been a longer career. Yeah. You know, so they're... You know, sort of a, a lot came out in court when um, James Warburton left Ten to briefly. Sorry, when James a lot came out in court when James Warburton left Seven to go and briefly run Ten about the deteriorating relationship between Warburton yeah. and Mackey, and you know the the proprietor Kerry Stokes making the call to probably have to move Leckie aside, and that was because he was becoming a difficult character work to work with and effectively his time was up and it's such a shame that if um you know he'd, he'd, he'd had his health issues under more control he could have probably given another 10 years at the top of his game yeah. so that 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 for me is you know what an amazing defining character he you know he he had an amazing career at nine then he got fell out with 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 kerry packer as everybody you know often did came to seven helped lead the turnaround at seven took it to the number one network um you know very few people like that and yet what might he have achieved you mm. know so that's the one sadness so i yeah so i i i didn't i i don't think i got to see him at his very best and that's a bit of a shame yeah fair enough okay um so the reason I'm getting to talk to you, and I would love a chat with you anytime, is to talk about Media Unmade. So this is the book you've just released, which is essentially about the digital revolution of the industry and the last decade, how it's been very disruptive. Um, it's really interesting reading this book, Tim, because from my perspective, the things you talk about that I'm aware of, that I was inside with, are very true to form. And there's a lot in here, especially on the print side, when it comes to newspapers, that isn't my area of expertise, that is really fascinating as well. So tell me, how did digital change the media landscape? Look, I, I suppose the short answer is in every way possible. Yeah. Um, and I think depending on the medium, the the way it disrupted it was different. You know, mo, mo, for most established media, it was probably for the worse. Um, I think maybe the only medium I can think that was for the better was probably, certainly for the established players, was probably outdoor advertising because mm. suddenly you could digitise your billboard and put a lot more ads on it rather than paste something up that's there, up there for the next 28 days. So, but, 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 but in most cases, it, it disrupted their models. So for TV, it splintered the audiences. Mm. For the newspapers, 
advertising leaked away for magazines you had these you know competing uh other options for people's attention um for radio you saw music streaming coming along so mm. so it was a challenge of both the business models for all of these people and also a challenge for the audiences so it it absolutely changed everything and you know i think we look back um probably every media decade since at least the 1950s and it was the most disruptive decade yet <laughs> and certainly that's true for 2010 to 2020 you know but we're probably we're probably in the new most disruptive decade and we just don't know it yet maybe but the change in the way audiences view content I feel has been the most disruptive in this past decade what is covered by your book than what it could ever be again. You know, we've gone from three commercial free-to-air networks to, what, 20-something, you know, with digital. Then you've got, so not only have the network splintered, but then we've got content on demand like Netflix, Dan, and, and the like. So to see that kind of disruption again, I don't think we will because I don't think the networks will have the power that they once had at this point. Yeah, look, it's a good question, isn't it? I there, the, the, there was a quote I used in the book from Chris Stevenson, who um, leads strategy for one of the media agencies, PhD, and I think he was quoting somebody else, but um, his argument was the speed of change will never be this slow again, this mm. argument that it always keeps accelerating. So so I think we'll have to see. My, I suppose my instinct just sort of... So I, I, I've been a journalist since 1989, you know, so... I was lucky enough that just for a few weeks, I trained on manual typewriters. You know, so, I, so I, you know, I got to see the excitement of the arrival and, and disappearance of fact, you know, I, I guess I, got, I actually got to see the disappearance of technologies I saw arrive because I yeah. saw the arrival and disappearance of fax machines. Um, you know, the mobile phones came into, into that, that, that first office and of course, computerization. Um, and it, it, it does feel like there's been constant disruption. Um, and each time, I suppose at the time, I thought, oh, okay, I guess we've settled now. And then something else comes along. So I get, I wonder if that mm. instinct that was well, surely it can't be as crazy again is purely because we can't see that crazy thing coming down the line. Uh, what's interesting about the book is it, it's almost tied up nicely because a lot of it covers the digital disruption from Stan and Mike Sneesby almost tops and tails this book because he goes from a digital disruptor with the things he was doing to becoming the CEO of Nine. It becomes a nice full stop for the book, doesn't it? Look, I was very lucky with the structure of the book in uh, um, probably two things happened. One was for the future of newspapers, um, the news media bargaining code came along, which was, you know, when the government kind of you, via the ACCC leaned on, uh, leaned, leaned on Google and Facebook to hand over a bunch of money. And you, you might remember that Facebook turned off the news feed for mm -hmm. Australia for, for a few days. So that, that made one quite neat ending because that solved the business model for newspapers. But yeah, the other, the other part was, you know, the, 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 second or possibly third coming of nine you know we start the decade in the doldrums and by the end of this story it's become the the, the biggest and arguably most influential uh media business certainly locally owned media business in australia having taken over fairfax so being this powerhouse not just in television 
but in, in, in newspapers and publishing as well, and also reinventing what television means. So not just mm. being a broadcast network, but beginning to make... Um, and advertising supported streaming TV work and having made this absolutely crucial investment in Stan, which at the time was alongside Fairfax that went then when they merged, Nine ended up with 100% ownership with. And, you know, the, the big credit to Mike Sneersby of that is he made Stan work when others mm. didn't. You know, you might remember that Seven and uh, Foxtel got in bed with Presto, yep. which just crashed. Um, that could, if it had been done better, that could have been a competitor. So, there are, I think there are very few local streaming services like Stan in other parts of the world which um, have been as successful. And I think the question now for Sneasby is, where does he take nine from here? You know, mm. has he inherited from Hugh Marks this organisation right at the top of his game and he just carries on trying to do what they're doing? Or does he evolve the strategy in some way? And I think that's what we're really waiting to see right now. That's a very good point because there is a big dilemma facing all the networks. They talk about digital and digital strategies, but to me, no one's really jumping in the deep end of the pool. They're putting their toe in, but obviously there's still a lot of money to be made from free-to-air broadcasting. But do you, will it be a case like Stan, the first one to get in there and do it properly will own the digital world? Will free-to-air become a digital platform? At, at some point, free-to-air has to be turned off, right? Yeah, look, it it has, and it's sneaking up. So, you know, I, I until quite recently, I've been splitting my time between Tasmania and Sydney. So we were in a rented apartment in Sydney where it just so happened that the, for whatever reason, the aerial didn't work. Mm. So we were watching all of our free-to-air television streamed via the apps on Fetch. Yep. Um, so, I, I, I you know, I, I, I guess at that, that point, we were no longer getting it over the airwaves. Um, and, you know, one... One of the fascinating things would, would, would be, particularly in lockdown, where I'd be getting up a little bit later, I'd, um, you know, about 9am, I would just switch over to the Perth feed of ABC News Breakfast, <laughs> just to just to get the whole show. So you so you, you get weird things like that, where your, your audience is disintermediating in all sorts of ways. But, um, but yeah, you know, so, so I think there'll be... I think one of the things that audiences still really appreciate, and this goes for magazines, goes for, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why I love reading newspapers, but goes for broadcast television is having someone else curate things for you. Yes. You know, it's, it's one thing to, you know, back in the day it was DVD, but now obviously it's just the touch of a button. It's one thing to have reservoir dogs on the shelf, but then when you're tuning along the channels and it's just on that, happenstance or curation is is still really important i think um and then of course you know you you, you come to kind of in individual genres as well and you know i think news will always be something that people unify to watch together and sport is the other one um you know and i think if there was hey look there's lots of things i've been wrong about over the last decade but one of them definitely <laughs> was i i thought that sport i thought the price that, that people would pay for sports rights had peaked you know the networks kept pushing each other into onto the brink of bankruptcy by outbidding each other for mm. sport I thought surely there's gonna be some sanity 
and then streaming came along. So we're yes. going to have a new, a whole new wave of insanity mm. is my guess. You know, goodness quite knows how things are going to play out with NRL, but I'm sure there's going to be a twist or two for the next, next round of NRL rights. Well, I think we've already heard that they're talking about splitting up the grand final and state of origin. So you could have the main rounds on nine, the state of origin on seven. It's anyone's games really. And, yeah. And, and let's remember, you know, that's, and obviously that's happened with AFL in the past. We've mm. seen it across seven and 10, you know, and then if you look at other markets, like in the UK with EPL, wow, you've, you've got to have so many different sub subscriptions. If you, if you want to see your team in just in all EPL games, you know, I think it's in a, at least three packages. I think now in your time covering the beat in this country and we're TV focused. So what is the biggest TV story? Not the, not the, not the overall, the biggest individual story that you are like this was a real thing um i look back and i i think nine nine are very very lucky that the 60 minutes beirut bungle didn't go even worse mm. you know right now some of not you know some nine talent and stuff could still be in prison in beirut if things had gone a little bit differently yeah you know it was pretend it, it was a massive uh black mark at the time but nine came through it imagine how different it would have been if it come out just a bit earlier that Hugh Marks, very newly the ceo had signed off so this is for people who don't remember this was the um, it, 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 it was 60 minutes going to Beirut to film the uh, at, attempt to bring back some children who were involved in the child custody issue. Um, but they, they became a part of the story. They got mm. themselves arrested. It was hugely expensive untangling it. But for Hugh Marks, he was the new CEO at that point. If it had associated with him a bit more, um, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been beyond the realms of possibility that he would have had to resign. And then I think the history of the media for the last five years would have looked quite different because I suspect that the takeover of Fairfax wouldn't have happened. That probably would have ended up in the hands of maybe in Seven, maybe with Southern Cross or Stereo or something like that. Possibly the investment in Stan, everything would have changed. You know, it wouldn't be a five billion dollar company now. It would, you know, it'd be lucky to be a billion dollar company. Um, so that that was, I, I guess, such a multi-dimensional story. Just because there was a human dimension, there was a reputation dimension, there was a business dimension. Um, so I'm I'm almost surprised that um, how much we've forgotten it now. It's a very good point and obviously was a big story at the time that just kept going and going. And when you think about the implications, yeah, you're right. We could be in a very different landscape right now. Look, and I suppose that's the point is, is uh, you know, I think I make the point somewhere in the book as well. Where we ended up was not inevitable. It feels like there's so many just, you know, economic forces at play. Of course, we're going to get here. But then there's almost, you know, there's always these individuals who make different calls. You know, what, you know, what if James Packer and, you know, Lachlan Murdoch hadn't had that whim to take over 10, you know, or to attempt to take over 10. And who could you know? have guessed it would end up in the hands of CBS? 
Yes, absolutely. And and yet, of course, you realise the seeds were right there just from the fact that, you know, many years before they had that studio output deal that made mm-hmm. made 10 such an important client as much as anything. So so you, you do you you get tugged in all sorts of little, you know, different directions that yeah, might change the outcome. Mm. Well, the book is Media Unmade. It is an absolute fantastic read, Tim. And seriously, my hat's off to you because writing a book is a very difficult task. And this, to me, is an historical document. This is the document of the last 10 years. And as I said, what you have written about with the things I know about, absolutely spot on. Your reporting and your depiction of those events is right on the money. Mate, congratulations. Well, Rob, thank you very much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Thank you, mate. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.